Hey everybody, this is the evening of the 3rd of March. Uh, I know I put a podcast out this morning and I put one out late last night, but events in Ukraine are, are running pretty fast. I'll just put it to you that way. And, um, you know, I think the world's maybe getting down to um, the end of Genesis, uh, the story of Joseph. You know, when Joseph put food away in the seven fat years for the seven lean years. And, you know, now China's got a bunch of state-owned reserves, but they use a lot of stuff. Uh, The United States produces a lot, so I think always the backstop there is we just quit selling it or get the price up high enough when we would. And um, But there's a lot of people in the world that went to just-in-time food delivery. Now, now you got a country like Lebanon that had their one big major grain elevator blow up, and they don't have much, quote-unquote, storage. Um, you know, you got to kind of feel for an outfit like that uh, that, that, that has to buy hand-to-mouth. But a lot of countries have had the ability to not just buy hand-to-mouth, but they always expect us producers to store it, us producers to hold the surplus, us producers to, to crank up production when they needed it. And, you know, I that keeps prices down because they don't want to be thought of hoarding it or keeping a reserve or buying it. But not that long ago, back during the pandemic, prices were a lot cheaper. And these countries could have built storage. They could have filled the storage up. They could have their own, quote-unquote, grain reserve. You know, several times the United States has tried a grain reserve just for the simple fact we were trying to keep prices up to our producers. But when the supplier who raises big crops every year, and even in a drought, the United States raises a pretty good crop. Even in bad weather, even in floods, I mean, we raise more than we need and we always export it. Um, You know, maybe it's time for the buyers for the countries that that are the consumers to keep some of their own storage. So, you know, my advice to them is the next time prices dip, I'd build some grain bins and I'd store some grain, boys and girls. I think it'd be smart on you. Uh, whoever, who, whoever, you know, whoever thought of Putin doing this. But you know what? The world's a crazy place, always been a crazy place. You've had crazy things go on about... Gosh, it seems like at times every 20 to 50 years. And you probably ought to prepare yourselves a little bit better for it. So, you know, if you if you want a good story, go back to the end of Genesis and read about Joseph. Guy that spent seven years in prison, by the way. Guy that was wrongly accused by his employer's wife. They got him thrown into prison, and basically when he was employed by the guy, he was somewhat a semi-slave, even though he was running the place. Uh, you know, ends, ends up, quote-unquote, in prison for seven years, and then he comes out and runs the kind of the major country in that part of the world, maybe the most major country at the time in the world. Um, interesting story, interesting thoughts. You know, um, I love... I love fifty twenty. You know, man intended it for bad, but God intended it to, for good. What I'm doing right now, the saving of many lives, and I think that's a good lesson for all of us to learn. But let's take hey, go to the events that's going on in Ukraine right now. Now, China's telling us buyers to buy, 
basically tell them not to worry too much about price. Just get corn bought, get barley bought, iron ore, oil, and gas. So that tells you maybe they think they got enough soybeans or they're going to be able to get enough soybeans out of Brazil and the United States. But, but you know, Ukraine, you know, exported like 16% of the corn. And from what I'm being told, there's 600 million bushel of corn trapped in Ukraine. Most of that was going to be purchased by the Chinese. Not all of it, but most of it. South America can probably ship 150 million more bushel to the Chinese, which means the Chinese are probably going to have to come to the United States in the next three months, in March, April, and May, to buy the other 450 million. And if that's the case, that, that'll push some other exports back. But they're, but you're hearing some buyers say, well, China's probably going to buy this up front, so you want to buy in July and August. So we may have a heavy loading schedule all the way through September. We may have a heavy loading schedule into October, shipping, quote-unquote, last year's crop, which will probably be this year's crop that we'll start harvesting early, which tells you we're probably going to use up more of this year's crop. So all those carryover balance sheets that USDA put out at their Outlook meeting are probably worthless. I think you can put them with the Sears Roebuck calendar in the outhouse and use them for that because I don't think any of that stuff printed off is relevant right now. And, and that's why, and a lot of you heard me before, I'm not big on the Outlook meeting. I'm not big on, on these predictions before we actually get down doing stuff, before we even surveyed our farmers. You know, they got a farmer survey that's going to come out at the end of the month. Now, <clears throat> I get it, that Outlook forum with USDA is for the Secretary of Ag to invite all the big dogs out there and rub shoulders with them and look big up on the stage and everything else. But basically, all we tell the world is, ah, don't worry. We're going to have plenty. It's going to be cheaper later. Don't worry about buying it now. Buy it later. 90% of the time or more, that's what comes out of the Outlook Forum. And uh, as you can tell, you know, the Outlook Forum, it doesn't really matter what it said because what, what did happen last week? Week before last, can't remember now. All the events that happened on Ukraine overtook it and overtook it quickly. Now, let's talk a little bit more about China. You know, down the road, I think China is going to try to figure out a way to get foodstuffs probably railed in to China. Maybe, maybe boated in, but maybe railed into China. That's why I think for both Russia and China, it was so strategic of them that they had to keep Kazakhstan from breaking off and really becoming independent. Because most of the Silk Roads go across Kazakhstan. And uh, sure appears to me, too, that, that China will probably, and even India, will probably figure out a way to circumvent the U.S. dollar and the European um, Euro and the British pound and figure out a way to trade with, with Russia, but it's sure going to hurt a lot of other people. And, and I'm hearing too, that maybe down the road, China will buy a whole bunch of Russian stuff, Russian slash possibly Ukrainian. We don't know how this thing's going to all turn out. And then China will resell the excess back into Southeast Asia to other people. Um, you know, that's possible after the fighting slows down or after Ukraine capitulates or after Russia pulls out. You know, who who knows what goes on? Um, you know, you're hearing a lot of trouble with the Russians running out of fuel. With, um, you know, the the Ukrainians, you're seeing, you're seeing pictures of Ukrainian tractors towing 
Russian military vehicles that have either been abandoned or ran out of fuel. I, I've seen several pictures on the internet. Um, I'm, I'm guessing, hey, who may, who knows? Maybe Big Tractor Power will put together a video of all the the uh, Russian military um, uh, equipment that's being towed by tractors in Ukraine. That that would be an interesting YouTube video. I'd watch that one. I can tell you this much, and those of you that know me know that my dad was a combat infantryman in World War II. Served in two armies. He served in Patton's Third Army, and then they moved up north and they served in another army, and I'm not going to mention it because I'm not going to talk as favorably as I am the Third Army. The old man loved being in the Third Army because, by God, Patton made sure that they had their bedrolls up at night, that they had their, their food up at night. It was always warm food. Of course, Dad said the way they were told by the rear echelon troops that they didn't get them warm food and didn't get their bedrolls and didn't get that stuff, Patton had have their asses on the front line the next day. And I can pretty well believe that. But the Third Army was a well-oiled machine and had, you know, now, did Patton run out of fuel going across France? France? Yes, and he knew he was going to. He ran them until they ran out of fuel, and then the Germans kind of banged them up pretty bad, but... They took the fuel away from Patton. They gave it up north to Montgomery. Of course, Montgomery made the, the Bridge Too Far campaign. Uh, Patton, I still think if you'd have fueled up Patton and the 7th Army that had invaded through southern France, I think they'd have cut into the underbelly of Germany and maybe stopped the war six months earlier than what it did. But um, that's all hindsight. That's a lot of stuff. Some reason, too, Eisenhower didn't like the guy that was running the 7th Army. But I digress. When Dad got, uh, when his outfit got moved up north, right next to the British, so if you're a World War II person, you could figure out which army it was, they didn't always have their bedrolls brought up to them at night. They didn't always have warm chow every night. They didn't have hot coffee in the morning. They didn't have warm breakfast. And it was a different deal. Well, the Russian army's suffering from logistics right now. And possibly to Russian people not wanting to die. And, you know, and I've maybe said this before. My dad's always said a guy that didn't want to die was pretty easy to stop. A guy that didn't care whether he died or not was pretty damn hard to stop. And people that wanted to die sometimes were impossible to stop. Well, I don't know if the motivation's there for the average Russian soldier to don't care whether they die or not or want to die. The average Russian soldier probably wants to live, and that makes them a little bit easier to stop. They run out of fuel. Somebody points a gun at them. They're going to quit, and it looks like that's what they're doing. Now, Russia's got so much superior manpower and equipment, they, they, and, and you're seeing here what air power does for you. Russia's got control of the skies. They can hit anybody, anywhere, anytime from the sky, and that makes it tough. Now, <clears throat> you know, we're sending, you know, handheld missiles and stuff to them, but nothing's the same thing as having another airplane screwing around with another airplane up there and kind of getting them off their mission of getting somebody on the ground. But I don't think we're going to throw our planes up there and risk a nuclear war, and I wouldn't do that either. Um, now, talking to the boss, she says somebody's got to do something to those poor people, and she doesn't care. By God, she'd give them more support than what we're giving them. So, differences of opinion there. But, let's talk about, the, get, get back on the track here. Um, Russia 
exports 17% of the world wheat exports. Ukraine exports 12%. So that's 29% of the world's wheat exports come out of those two countries. That's a breadbasket, folks. And then Ukraine has 16% of the corn. I don't have the number for Russia. It's not as big. Uh, they got 80% of the sun, sunflower oil exports. It's going to be interesting to see what sunflower contracts in the Canadian prairies in the northern United States, uh, northern plains of the United States is going to be, uh, even over to like Montana. Uh, Ukraine's yet to ship, uh, what they say, 15.1 million metric tons. Now, like I said, somebody else said it was 600 million bushel. Um, Ukraine ships out two-thirds of its wheat, 80% of its corn. And we, we got to think, are they going to get it planted? That's the big question going on right now. Uh, Russia ships out half its wheat crop. And, you know, talking to people, you know, that, that barley would be getting planted right now in parts of Ukraine, southern Russia. Now, I think southern Russia's planting their spring wheat. I think they're planting their barley to plant their oats, but I don't think they're doing much in Ukraine. I sure wouldn't want to be running a tractor out there with airplanes flying over the top of me that's got missiles that can shoot at you. Um, you know, there, there's some people speculating that the Ukraine oat crop probably won't get planted, and, you know, the world is short of oats. Canada had that big drought, and, and you know what? The Canadian prairie provinces, if you look at the drought monitor up there on them, they're still dry. Um, they're still dry. Um, you know, the, the, the oak crop gets planted the first half of um, April. Spring barley should be, should be being planted right now. Now, they still got a window to plant that barley. They still got the window to plant the oats. But the longer this thing goes, the more chance that stuff doesn't happen. Now, I know some people say, well, that gives them a chance to plant it to corn later if they get a chance to plant corn. Now, the old saying, high prices cure high prices and low prices cure low prices. India is going to export some wheat. For the last five years, India has basically harvested mammoth wheat crops. Five years in a row. It's got excess supplies, but India's kind of looked at, you know, storing away the story of Joseph and the price. But now you're getting that wheat price up there high enough. India's thinking about, hmm, maybe we ought to let some of this go. India is also a big rice exporter. And one thing about this, I haven't haven't looked at rice prices lately, but I know just until, you know, a little bit ago until this Ukrainian thing took off, rice prices hadn't really gone up a whole lot. So, um, and I think Australia will benefit big time because Australia, you know, a lot of people that pull stuff out of the Black Sea area and then go down through the Suez Canal, you know, cut across the eastern edge of the Mediterranean, and, you know, basically kind of from Turkey to, to Egypt, you know, which is pretty close together, and then they go through the Suez Canal, is Southeast Asian countries. And Australia's sitting right there in a position to supply them that. Um, fertilizer. Nitrogen's up 25 or 29%, 29%, almost one-third. Nitrogen's up 29% in New Orleans in a week. 29% in a week. Wow. Potash, 25% of European fertilizer needs come from Russia. Plus, 
a whole bunch of natural gas that's used to make the rest of nitrogen in the European plants. The United States has got the highest diesel prices in nine years, and I know there was a, and I'll, I'll call him an idiot, there was an idiot on Twitter that was talking about, well, show me somebody that spends more than $80 a week in gas. 80 bucks doesn't fill up a pickup truck. And I know this guy's going to say, well, you don't need to be driving a pickup truck. I don't know how we're going to haul livestock trailers around and haul cattle without a pickup. And if you looked at the price of diesel lately, what was 60 bucks under Trump quickly became 90 bucks under Biden because he shut down all of our oil stuff. And now it's become 130 bucks. So it's more than double. You want Trump back? Um, you know, the other major EU corn producers, Romania, Bulgaria, and France, they could maybe try to crank it up, but they only got so much ground. Um, you know, uh, yeah, well, here's the thing. You could sit back too. And earlier I talked about, you know, where they're talking about, you know, going to be a lot of demand here in March, April, and May. And if you look, there's a huge inversion going on in the grain market, huge inversion, where cash right now is worth a whole lot more than grain in July. If you look at the contracts, March worth a lot more than July. Now, is July going to go up to where March is now? Well, right now, you can, you, you know, there's a, there's a 50 cent negative spread for holding it to July. 56 cents, I think, in beans today. So it's saying, you know, we need it now, we need it now, we need it now. And I can see some people saying, well, it's going to get cheaper in July. Let's just wait and buy it later. But you also run the risk of getting into a drought premium in this country if we have bad weather. Whew. You know, generally, July is worth more than March because they're paying, it to, paying you to store it. You know, see, seeing some of the quote-unquote experts, you know, that are saying, you know, sell the cash and buy the calls because you got a 50-cent spread there. Wow. A lot going on. I, I got more. I'm going to wait till morning, though, to, to, to run the rest of it. I'm just going to finish up here. Um, there was a congressional hearing, and all the ag groups are all excited because they had Farm Bill testimony. And I can tell you what's going on in Ukraine right now, what's going on with fertilizer prices, what's going on with muse machinery prices, what's going on with herbicide. You know, you've heard me say it before. We may have to decide what we're going to plant based on what herbicide we can get, even though we may have to pay high-priced fertilizer and plant it to corn, even though we'd like to plant more soybeans because we can't get soybean herbicide, which makes it real, real, real difficult to sell 23 grain, even when we get real high, because you don't exactly know what you're going to plant because you don't know what inputs you're going to be able to get and at what price. And, and I'm beginning to wonder, price is going to be irrelevant. It's going to be whether you can get it or not. And let's don't forget out of this Ukraine-Russia deal, China's probably not done playing around here, folks. Now, they're, they're probably watching it closely, but China's probably not done playing around. But back to the Farm Bill testimony. And the ag groups are all excited about this, but you sometimes need to tell the social media people when there's a huge event going on, you're probably wasting your time trying to get traction in social media with what you're trying to sell, do, put out there, whatever. 
Farm Bill testimony. Everybody talked about crop insurance, crop insurance, crop insurance, and I'll say this: that and you heard me in the in just my last podcast talk about maybe how different the nineteen eighty farm crisis would have been if we'd have had that good crop insurance in eighty and eighty three. Oh, make disaster assistant permanent, and and the WIP Plus program is not a very well designed program. If you're going to make disaster permanent, and I get it because. Certain things are hard to buy crop insurance for, so you make a disaster program for the other crops. I, I, I don't know if, you know, if you're wanting to throw more disaster aid at farmers, just enhance crop insurance in the most part. But then you do have the crops that you either can't buy crop insurance or can't get a high level of crop insurance and make a better, make a better permanent disaster program than WIP+. Plus. Not saying cut the money. I'm saying make a better program, make a more administrative friendly program because it is a pain for your FSA county offices to do that. And all the stuff that's supposed to pre-fill in that from crop insurance, yeah, right, good luck at that. ARC PLC does not cover the cost of production. That's one of the things that came out. And ARC PLC is kind of another supplemental crop insurance countywide deal. Um, and, and you got, you know, uh, rice, cotton, peanuts, th- those people like the PLC because they probably got too high of prices for PLC. <clears throat> but they're the ones pushing, well, look at our cost of production. We need higher prices. And, you know, are you going to make the, make the ARC PLC program like the dairy margin coverage program, which basically the dairy margin coverage basically is going to tell a dairy person, we're going we're gonna to make sure you make money as long as you can manage your dairy pretty well. Um. And I don't, you know, right now, because the world's short of grain, yeah, you want to subsidize getting as much grain out there as you can, but I'm not sure long-term you want to cover everybody's cost of production, or the average cost of production, even. And then the one thing that wasn't mentioned, but I know is being talked about, is a nitrogen subsidy cost payment. If the cost of this nitrogen and other fertilizer does not go down, uh, possibly an incentive to get farmers to go ahead and plant corn, versus putting the whole farm in soybeans, but possibly good luck on finding your soybean herbicide. And, man, the world gets complicated. Um, that there'll be some kind of nitrogen uh, cost subsidy. Um, last thing, um, Mo- supposedly Moldova has banned exports of grain. Now, Moldova, which is right between Romania and Ukraine, and another country that used to be part of the former Soviet Union that some people think as soon as Putin gets through absorbing Ukraine, he's going to try to absorb Moldova because there's that Transtista or Transtrania or whatever, that little sliver between Ukraine and Moldova that the Russians already have troops there, and it's a breakaway like River Valley from Moldova. Bunch of Russians, I guess, live there. Um, you know, Putin wants to take that one back over because that was part of the Soviet Union too. But Moldova's banning exports of grain, probably in the hope of keeping the price of their grain down. Um, now, if Ukraine doesn't get to export anything, that that area within quote unquote driving distance is probably going to have plenty. Probably the last thing I'll mention, and. Uh, going to talk a lot more about it a person sent me tonight well they posted it we talked about it a little bit one of the big grain firms be, uh, name begins with a c and we'll leave it at that 
their pro price and corn price is down to 427 and three quarters. So you got the guy buying the grain, pricing your grain, and I guess I'll just ask the question, are they intentionally screwing it up so they can buy cheaper corn? I'll just say this, and I've seen this a little bit from experience, but I never did build a grain bin. But there was people that signed grain bins where they were going to sell corn for two dollars and thirty cents, and then in two thousand eight, corn went to eight bucks. But I got a free grain bin. Um, not really free because you still had to do the concrete and the unloading equipment, a whole bunch of other stuff. But you were stuck selling "quote unquote" two dollars and thirty cents corn when corn went to eight bucks. Also, on the same thing, I, I know one individual that a seed company. Oh, we'll put up this shop machine shed for you, but you got to buy all our seed for like the next five years. And uh, underperforming varieties, to say the least. Well, hey, I'm, I'm going to post this one on about 25 minutes here, a little over 25 minutes here. Sorry about the length. There's just a lot going on. I'll have another one out in the morning. A lot to talk about. Ukraine, Russia, marketing, what do you do? Do you sell some now? Do you not sell some now? Is, you know, the risk off, you know, the, the, the wheat thing looks like wheat's going to trade now, but, you know, you get wheat locked up and, uh, you know, if wheat does truly take off, wheat becomes the leader and that means it's a good market when wheat's the leader. Or at least in my opinion, that is. I could be wrong. Been wrong before. Well, hey, smartest audience in agriculture. Thanks for listening.